53 minutes on you right Damn, now. Damn, that's what it was. <laughs> You're one of four of your teammates who played 50 minutes, Kyle. Uh, How do you prepare physically and mentally for a game seven? I don't like sea biscuit. <laughs> I don't know, man. Just go and win. It don't matter how you get it done, no matter who has to do it. Coach believes in us and what we do. We believe in him and what he believes and what, what he wants us to do. And uh, we got the game seven. Well, like Sea Biscuit, you got to win tonight. Yeah, gotta go win get tonight. some rest, Thank Kyle. You. Appreciate it. Back to you, Mike. Game five of Boston Celtics versus Toronto Raptors. And this was another blowout. This Celtics team has blown out the Raptors by over 15 points four times this season. Frankly, I've had enough. This is pathetic. This Toronto team seems only to lose in one way. They don't lose close games. So in some ways, you can look at it as a positive. As long as the Raptors keep the game close, they've actually got a very good chance of winning. But this simply can't happen. Days like this where it seems as if not a single player turns up. What did Coach Nurse say again? He talked about a lack of effort and energy. Again, I've had enough of that excuse. We've heard that excuse from him. Earlier on in this series, he said they didn't turn up. But if you're not going to turn up in a series tied 2-2, when are you going to turn up? And I don't even think it's a particularly valid excuse. If you look at the rotation that the Celtics had this game, yes, they had 10-11 players play, but... Really, it was just a six-man rotation with uh, Brad Wanamaker ending up uh, playing as like the sixth man, playing 28 minutes this game. He had a fantastic game, 15 points, five and nine from the field. But uh, the Raptors in this game actually had uh, more depth. They had people playing more minutes. And I know that was later on in the game. That's understandable. And in all fairness, Carl Lowry and uh, Van Vliet have had a, such a heavy load on their shoulders all series long. But if lethargy is a problem, Coach Nurse needs to find a way to make sure that his guys are as fresh as possible in this game. Because this performance was frankly pathetic. Not a single Raptors player really showed up outside of maybe Van Vliet and even he didn't have a great the Raptors ended up scoring 30% from the three-point line and 38% from three. That's just not good enough, despite how stifling this Celtics defense has been. And when you look at the Celtics, they had, again, a very balanced scoring effort. The starting five all posted double-digit scores, which is not the first time that has happened this series. If you look at, uh, for example, their highest score of this game, it was Jaden Brown. And what does that tell us? That's very eye-opening because... This is something that we talk, we're going to talk about later on in this episode. But three or four of these Celtics players can, on any given night, go for 25 points or more. They have several players that can do that. And when it comes to Jalen Brown, he not only had a game-high score here, but defensively, he shut down Pascal Siakam after Pascal looked like he might be building momentum after Game 4. On an 11-2 run now, and they lead it 16-5 here in the first quarter. Powell on the take, and it's blocked by Tice. Brown with it. Got Smart running to his right. Gives it right back, and Brown throws it down. Oh, Oh. my goodness. Cocked it back and delivered a strong jam. The dunk was so good, it overshadowed a great pass by Marcus Smart. Um, I don't want to be harsh on Siakam. I still think 
He's trying to find his place in in the offense against his team. Um, and in all fairness, he was fairly efficient. He shot five and nine from the field. But one man who really needs to turn it around, Marcus Gasol, zero of four from the floor, zero of one from three points. This stat line is incredibly flat. He ended up with zero points. I mean, he also ended up playing 14 minutes because he was such a detriment on the offensive end. He was pretty much all he was good for was setting a couple of screens. Um, He really needs to step up. This whole team needs to step up. And after this game, my optimism for the Raptors being able to turn this series around has diminished rapidly. Leaning to try and help. Got to, if you're the Celtics, you got to tell him there's no help sending him to his right. Send him middle and get help. Lowry falling away. Got it. Kyle Lowry drills the jumper and it's back to a four-point lead. Leaning to try and help. You got to, if you're the Celtics, you got to tell him there's no help sending him to his right. Send him middle and get help. Lowry falling away. Got it. Kyle Lowry drills the jumper and it's back to a four-point lead. After being blown out in Game 5, it seemed an inevitability that the Celtics would ensure that this is the last time this group of Raptors play together in a crucial elimination, Game 6. The first quarter almost exemplified the series so far. On one end, you had Marcus Smart raining down threes. He was 3 of 3 from behind the arc in the first 3 minutes. And of course, you had Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum supplementing it as they scored the rat all the Celtics 25 points in the opening 12 minutes. On the other side, you had the two talismen, now Kyle Lowry and OG Ananobi, still going strong, responding 25-21 after the first quarter. And for what seemed like the first time in seven quarters of basketball, the Raptors did not lose one of their 12-minute segments to the Celtics. Despite going through a scoring slump towards the middle of the second quarter and being bullied by Jalen Brown, who had 21 points at this point, at this point, and even Brad Wanamaker coming off the bench and nailing two threes, with just three minutes to go, the Celtics were up 50-40, and it looked like the Raptors were sinking without trace. However, up steps Serge Ibaka, who in the absence of any of Marc Gasol's technical ability, nailed three three-pointers, almost a mirror of Smart's performance in the opening three minutes, to drag the Raptors back into this game. Going into halftime, it's now 52-48, and while there isn't that much hope amongst the Toronto fan base, and I got this through social media, there's not much hope. There was fight, and that is the ethos of Nick Nurse's team. That Ibaka performance in the second quarter seemed to have inspired the Raptors' forgotten men, the underperformers throughout this series. Fred Van Vliet came flying out of the blocks in the third, three from three from behind the arc. It's 12 points in total, and Mark Gasol hitting his first three of the entire series, and a couple of minutes later, nailing another. And suddenly the Raptors were not only back in this game, they were ahead. And that's something they hadn't experienced since Game 4. 
Now the fourth was a controversial one in many ways. You had Jason Tatum allegedly passing to Nick Nurse who had his toes on the baseline, uh, even though he wasn't wearing a Celtics jersey and looked more like a ref than anyone else. A crucial turnover given away by Jason Tatum on a possession where the Celtics could have put themselves up big. Siakam struggling once again. He went one from five in the fourth quarter, but his defense was excellent on the other end. And that's one of the main reasons why he was kept in and why Nick Nurse switched to small ball. Gasol and Ibaka would not seek the floor again after four, the opening four minutes of this quarter. Instead, it was OG Ananobi playing at the five. And the rest of the quarter proved to be a real grinder between the two best defensive sides in the Eastern Conference. It was the lowest scoring quarter. The Raptors hit 17 and Boston scored 21. But the Raptors did not score for the last four and a half minutes of the game. And in fact, just held on. After that Tatum turnover, the Celtics had one more chance to win the game. It was Kemba Walker, who had struggled all game thanks to the box and one defense, who drove towards the hoop and appeared to get some contact from both Fanley and Ananobi. Now on one side, technically that's foul, but on the other side, do refs ever give those on the last possession of the game? It's why players like Damian Lillard choose to pull up from 40 feet rather than drive in, because you're going to get battered because you've got playoff basketball and end-of-the-game basketball. And you mix those two together, and suddenly it needs to be a really hard foul to even be considered. We're going to overtime. And when no one else can deliver up steps, Norman Powell, one who's been struggling all series, but as Fred Van Vliet said after the game, he always pops up, even if it's for one, se one game in one series, he will always pop up to save the Raptors' season. We've seen it before against the Bucks against Orlando, but now we are seeing it in one of the most crucial games in Raptors playoff history, as he leads the overtime scoring with five points. He even had a chance to end it once and for all. The Raptors decided to give the ball to Norman Powell for the final possession of the first overtime. He matched up against Kemba Walker, he was isolated against him, but instead of driving to the hoop, maybe he didn't want to make the same mistake Kemba did. Of driving to the hoop, he waited, and then took a sidestep three, which unfortunately rimmed out, bringing it to second overtime. Now, if you think the first overtime yielded 16 points, the second, 35. And every single basket was absolutely crucial. After the Celtics went up four, you had Siakam slashing the deficit with a baseline jumper. And when Marcus Smart hit another one of his back breaking threes. You had OG going up the other end and nailing one of his own. And of course to put the Raptors up, you had two crucial plays from Norman Powell. The first, a three to put the Raptors up. And secondly, when Jason Tatum had a chance to equalize, just a one possession game at this point, him and Lowry worked together, put in some brilliant defense to strip the ball to poke it away from Tatum. Norman went up the other end and you look at Jalen Brown, an excellent defensive player, one who is gonna block you more often than not when you're in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Norm managed to adjust his body and get an and one. This was such an absolutely crucial play and of course all five free throws he nailed. But if we're talking about daggers we have to save the best for last one 21 
1-17. That was a score after Kyle Lowry drove in on Jalen Brown and hit the most important fadeaway in 2020. An absolute vindication of the leadership role he plays on this team. And all the Raptors had to do was close it out using their typical brilliant defensive rotations and just hope that the Celtics couldn't hit a prey 125-122. We're going to preview Game 7 right now. Series has had truly everything from blowouts to wire-to-wire performances to buzzer beaters to double overtime. Well, how will this seven-game series end? What's the most appropriate way? It's buzzer beater or we riot, Kamel. It's buzzer beater or we riot. I hope this series mirrors the Raptors series of last year. Again, this was in the second round against the Sense Sixers, of course. Kawhi's memorable, unforgettable shot. That's the only way the series can go out, Kamel. It's been so back and forth. We've been on the edge of our seats the whole time. It might be slightly uncomfortable from a Raptors uh, perspective to have to wait till the last 10, 5, 10 seconds, but I think it would be the most poetic ending. The difference last year, of course, is that the Raptors had a closer like Kawhi to, you know, the kind of guy who would be able to make that shot. Now, okay, we've seen OG do it in game three, but if I was to ask you which players on each side are most likely excluding OG to make a buzzer beater, who are you looking to as the closers on either side? Not only, and of course, this is based on this series, because of course we might have said for the Raptors someone like Siakam or even Van Vliet, but watching this series, you wouldn't necessarily go to them. So, you know, what, what, are, you, what, what are you saying in terms of each, t- each team's closer and potential buzzer beating star? This is an excellent question, Kamal. And I think it really depends on how this end of, potential end-of-game situation goes. Of course, this is a lot of our hypotheticals we're throwing out here. We're suggesting that, yes, it is going to be a one-possession game in the five, like closing moments. But if it's an out-of-bounds possession, Kamal, I think both teams are confident enough in their starting five that they can really give the ball to whoever's open. If they run or draw up a play whereby, for example like some normal power is wide open from three. I think both teams are very comfortable with the amount of, you know, shot-creating ability all the, their players have on the floor that from an out-of-bounds play, I think we could see anyone really get the ball. If it was, you know, 10 seconds left and you haven't got any timeouts and somebody's bringing the ball down the court, for the Celtics, I think that has to be Jason Tatum. There's no other way around it. For the Raptors... That is a quandary. I have no idea. Personally, I would actually like to see Carl Lowry potentially be the closer if the situation arises. However, again, this is a lot of hypotheticals. Um, but the reason I'd like to see Carl Lowry, I think he's capable of making that tough kind of shot over, say, one or two players. And if he does get double teamed, he's a player that is smart enough to then find the right pass to the open player to then knock down the shot. So I'd like to see Carl Lowry take that possession for the Raptors. Well, yeah, it's interesting because obviously in game six, we saw the Raptors have three end-of-game situations with chances to win. The first, of course, um, was Siakam, 0.9 seconds left on the clock. So it's not really fair to judge him on that, but that was a wild 
Rainbow Three, which uh, almost banked in to be yeah. fair. Second was Norman Powell in the first overtime with 20 seconds left. The Raptors cleared out for him, let him ISO Kemba, and he almost settled for a sort of side step three, which is quite strange. But of course, if it came off, no one would be complaining. Now, at the end, of course, he then had Kyle Lowry going down for the penultimate possession. Um, I believe it was on Marcus Smart and just fading away and nailing that dagger shot. So, yeah, you might be right in terms of that's, that's who you want as a closer. Of course, if it's an inbound play, then Lowry will mo- most likely play the role he did in game three and actually, you know, be the assister rather than, yeah. the, than the finisher. But no, that's a, that's a good way to sort of start off this game seven preview. Um, I want to ask you, um, it's kind of generic, but the sort of biggest keys for each team, just in terms of if they improve this one thing, they've got game seven in the bag. Um, I can, I can start with the Raptors yeah. with this. Yeah, okay. um, and it's simply going to be, Pascal Siakam and Marc Gasol. Those two players, I mean, Gasol has not only been a disaster offensively. I mean, he didn't hit a three until the third quarter last game in the whole series. Um, And he's meant to be a threat from behind the arc. That's one of his strengths as a centre because of his lack of athleticism as he gets older. He he didn't hit a three. And his shootings generally has been very, very poor. But what's more important is he gets in foul trouble extremely early on. It's very been very common this series to see him have four or five fouls in the third quarter and so he has to be taken out and Ibaka has had to step up and of course he stepped up massively not only playing on a sprained ankle in game six and nailing several important threes to limit the Celtics momentum but um, he's also been great on on the on the block end you know you've seen a lot of you know get that garbage out of here kind of plays from from Serge and he's basically made up for Marcus Gasol's deficiencies this series uh so Gasol has to step up you realize his strengths are his IQ his intelligence on the court his ability to distribute but also he needs to be better from behind the arc because he's getting open looks yeah um but he's not being aggressive enough with them secondly quickly Siakam um we thought he would have a slight uh rejuvenation in games four and five where he scored over 20 points at least in one of them but he sort of reverted to type in game six and he was really struggling. He seemed to have three sort of plays, either just running into a traffic jam, losing the ball, maybe settling and jacking up a three or simply, you know, committing an offensive foul. It was, it was a really, really poor performance. He hasn't shot. He's shooting under 33% a lot of these games. And if he doesn't step it up, I mean, he's doing fine on the the defensive end. And that's the reason why he was the Raptors highest, played the most minutes for the Raptors in game six. Mm-hmm. But on the offensive end, he needs to learn to, if he's not shooting well, he needs to learn to be the facilitator to those who are, I think. Um, is, is there anything to, to add from your end on the Raptors? I mean, I know, I know I've chosen players because I don't think Nick Nurse can really be faulted here with any of his schemes. Um, so I've chosen two individual players rather than what the team needs to do in general. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I disagree with the Siakam take in terms of him being the facilitator. In the game where they tested it out, I believe it was in game two, where they had Siakam out on the top of the key. The problem with using him as a facilitator is that you're not utilising his strength. There, he's not able to use his length, his athleticism out there on the perimeter. And his biggest weakness, I think, offensively, is having a solid dribble he do, by no means does he have a poor dribble but again somebody with limbs the length 
or the size that he has, often if you get a hand in there, um, it can really trouble him. And a lot of the charges he had at the rim, Kamel, were actually off balance. So to act really as an elite facilitator in the NBA these days, you need to be able to beat the first man out on the perimeter. And I just don't trust him to be able to do that. So I wouldn't have him playing that facilitator role. I've been saying I love Carl Lowry when he's playing that role because, again, you're utilising the team's strengths to the fullest, I believe, with Carl Lowry acting uh, as a facilitator. When it comes to the Boston Celtics and what they need to do, I think Jalen Brown doesn't, he shouldn't worry about the offense uh, from his perspective. So whenever he gets open looks, say on the perimeter, I think he should take them. But I think he should just continue to attack Pascal Siakam so that he still has that, you know, limited offensive potential that we've seen all throughout this series. So he doesn't need to worry. Uh, Jalen Brown shouldn't worry about um, how many buckets he's getting. The second thing I'd like to see is that I actually want uh, Kemba Walker to have a bigger role in the offense, which is, again, might be uh, an interesting take. But for him, actually, no, no, let me scratch that. Let me scratch that. I meant to say this the other way around. I want Jason Tatum to be the primary scorer on offense. Why is that? I don't want Kemba Walker to have a large offensive uh, load if I'm Brad Stevens because he's getting picked on when it comes to whoever offense. Oh, sorry, uh, whoever offense from the Raptors' perspective. So the Raptors. Well, they played. Well, they played the box and one on Kemba. It's something they only really used against Steph Curry last year, mm-hmm. but they brought it out because Kemba's been killing them. So, um, surely, Kem that gave the likes of Tatum Brown and Smart a bit more space to operate. I'm not sure. I think it's quite good for the Celtics if Kemba's the focus of the defence, getting doubled, bringing help, um, allowing those to get open. I don't know. Yes, uh, and there you are utilising his massive strength. As, again, he's one of the best scoring point guards in the league. But for them, I think on the defensive end, when they were crushing and choking the Raptors, that's when the Raptors looked hopeless and out of ideas. And how are you going to get back to that kind of defense? As if Kemba, who was getting picked off, uh, picked on in a lot of these pick and roll situations, for him to have as much energy as possible and for the offensive load to be placed upon Jason Tatum, because we know Jason Tatum, even if he's slightly low on energy, he's still going to be very much an above average defender on the perimeter. So the Celtics' best chance of winning is again playing this suffocating, uh, crushing defense that they played where. At times, the Raptors look hopeless, out of ideas. And for that to happen, I think Kemba Walker, like I said, he needs to, res- in in a sense, reserve his energy so that um, he doesn't, he's not so much of a weakness for this Boston team. Yep, that's more than fair. I mean, just to give credit, both teams' defense has consistently been some of the most excellent, I think, yes. in any playoff series that yep. I've, I've personally seen. You know, I've never. It was always meant to be a grind, and I think that very few that mistakes, got... very few like mental uh, lapses of error. I think it definitely goes to the veteran experience that both teams have as well. And one thing that does do is makes every basket that that much more valuable and that much more yeah. um, jubilant for fans. I mean, there was one in overtime when the Raptors' rotations were absolutely brilliant, but the Celtics' ball movement was equal to it, and eventually. It just ended up with a Marcus Smart corner three. But it came after, you know, it must have been eight rapid 
very accurate passes because that's the only thing that can beat the the perimeter defense in this you know uh, that or some very clever screen action as we saw for OG and Norm quite late on so yeah the the defense in in both have been fantastic and again I wouldn't bet on any team to score above 100 in regular time once again um this this game personally mm-hmm. um so I guess lastly on this game well this series in fact just before we go out on this series um it could be the last time that these Raptors play together. Of course, if they lose, uh, you know, you could see the likes of Gasol, Ibaka, even Lowry uh, leave this team. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess uh, before that, let's let's talk about the more underrated players. Who's been a real surprise star in this series? And I was tempted to say Matt Thomas, <laughs> so we can leave OG, just because Matt Thomas did change the course of game six during the second quarter. And I would like to see him being utilized a lot more. He's a real wild card. But the real star, I think, and we can both agree with this, is has been OG. Yeah, definitely. Um, we we called mean, him out at the start of the series, didn't we? We said that would give this team the best chance of winning if OG really stepped up, offensively especially. Yeah, I mean, and he played at the five probably for the last 20 minutes of game six. And, you know, he, he, apart from a couple of alley-oops, which Daniel Tice managed to get, which you're going to get because, you know, OG's only 6'7", um, he played that role wonderfully well. And, of course, he hit the go-ahead, well, the yeah, the go-ahead three uh, in double overtime. So, you know, nerves, balls of steel sort of thing from OG. And he sort of continued his rise from game three, which wasn't a fluke. It wasn't a fluke. Yeah. Um, Great. Anything to add on Game 7 just before we move on? No, uh, I think we should move swiftly on. We'll just do a very short recap maybe of uh, some of the remaining series. Maybe we could start with, I wanted to go to the Lakers-Rocket series just because that's still ongoing. I think we probably yep, could finish off with the Heat box series on whatever the hell happened there. But um, with sure, the... So, um... <laughs> yeah, so, with uh, the Lakers-Rocket series, um, I just wanted to start off by saying... How did you feel after the Rockets took that first game so convincingly? When that happened, I thought, wow, this this is like David versus Goliath, this matchup anyway, when it comes to just as size differences. And I thought this is by far and away the Rockets' worst matchup in the entire NBA uh, when it comes to meeting a, a particular team in the playoffs. Um, and after that first game, I just thought maybe, you know, I'm completely wrong about this series. In, in my bracket, I actually had... Uh, the Lakers beating the OKC Thunder in six. But if the Rockets had made it to that stage, I would have had the Lakers in five. Despite the success that the Rockets did actually see in the regular season against the Lakers team, like you've seen the adjustment that this Lakers team has made to the Rockets. What have they done? They've played small all basically all series long. They very rarely had, uh, say, either Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee on the floor at the same time as Anthony Davis. Davis has played the centre position for the most part, and that's worked excellently for this team. Um, so if you've caught any of the series, Kamel, what do you think has stood out most about the Lakers' performance and maybe um, also from a Rockets' perspective as well, whichever one interests you more? Uh, well, Lakers is simply going to be Rondo. Um, his involvement in the games three and four especially has completely changed the whole dynamic of the series. Yeah. And um, I was listening just to uh, just to TNT, so Kenny Kenny and Shaq. Um, of course, um, 
my basketball knowledge, did Shaq ever play with Rondo or play against Rondo? Uh, he certainly did. Um, he certainly did. So he, he, he certainly knows, played he against him right with those, uh, yeah. when he played with LeBron, for example, against those Celtics teams. Um, yeah, so he knows Rajon well. And um, yeah. of course, Rondo to the Lakers was quite a big move, quite an underrated move because you got you got to have, it's not necessarily just talent needs to surround LeBron. It needs to be complementary players. So, it takes really the offensive load of him for a few possessions at a time. Rondo is a complete shot creator. And what it allows to do, it allows LeBron just to, you know, be the guy who starts off in the corner, who moves around the court, who comes off a screen, uh, who makes a cut into the basket. He doesn't always have to be that ball handler, which, you know, the Lakers, well, any team forces him to be. Rondo is such a complimentary player. And their chemistry between them two is excellent. I think Rondo has managed to get double-digit, a nine or at least double-digit assists in the last few games, which sort of shows how he manages to open mate, up the it's, floor. It's been, um, ridiculous. it's been a real struggle for the Rockets against Rondo. Today. Uh, spot on, and I don't spot on. many people said. <laughs> no, no, spot so, on. I've just checked the assists as well. Nine, nine, eight in the last three games. Um, I mean, yeah, Rajon Rondo. Um, I thought he, when this team was initially constructed, I thought they don't need him. If LeBron's acting as the main facilitator, great. Um, yeah, sure. Like you've got Rondo coming off the bench to shoulder um, that kind of responsibility because, it, in all seriousness, yeah, they don't really have that type of facilitator anywhere else. Like maybe you could argue Alex Caruso, but it's not it's not something that he's had you know years and years of experience uh, leading a secondary unit. So um, I thought at first that Rondo signing was slightly unnecessary. I would have actually liked to seen a facilitator who was a better shooter, but. In all seriousness, uh, not in all seriousness, but um, surprisingly, R- Rondo's also been lights out when it comes to shooting. I mean, look at these stats, Camille. 8 and 11 in game two, uh, 21 points. 8 and 11 in game three. Oh, sorry. Uh, that, I do have the same game up. I was like, that that seems very strange. <laughs> yeah. So that was the great <laughs> game three stats. And then game four, Rondo had um, 11 points, 5 and 8 shooting. Almost had a triple-double. So um, if Rondo is shooting uh, the three ball and just shooting from the floor at that kind of electric rate, I think any op- opposition team has basically zero chance. No, that's true. And um, on the Rocket side, can you tell me why the Rockets are not taking threes at an insurmountable rate, which is really the only way I think they could win the series at? They only took 30 threes in game three, only 33 in game, in game four. four. Yeah. Compare this to game two, where they took 53 yeah. and at least put up a fight. And uh, in game one, the Rockets took 39, which they won. But of course, they did their main damage um, elsewhere, especially as Russell Westbrook went off that game. Yeah, um, yeah why, why, why the lack of three? Why do you think um, D'Antoni... <laughs> No, this is this has got nothing to do with that Tony. This has got everything to do with the Lakers defense, Kamel. It's just been unbelievable. Um, like I said, they've um resisted going too big because I thought maybe a large advantage they could get if they have, for example, Anthony Davis, Travel McGee, they've got all the uh rim defense they could ev- ever want, especially with LeBron there, say when he's on the weak side coming over and helping over as well. LeBron's got some incredibly clutch blocks in some of these games. He had one that was actually very reminiscent of the block he did against Iguodala. He just um, came out of nowhere again, pinned it against the backboard. But um, 
what the Lakers coaching staff has realized is they get the most advantages when they play Anthony Davis at the center and where they run down uh, that three-point line like their lives depend on it. Um, you've got to look at Danny Green, despite how poorly Danny Green's actually shot in the series. He's, he's had a huge contribution when it comes to that particular facet of the game. Um, LeBron's done a great job. Even Anthony Davis has done a good job running them off the line. And even is when players then drive past Anthony Davis, Davis has got the recovery speed and just the length to actually catch up and block players. And again, that's why he's had a stupid number of blocks this series. Um, he had three blocks in game one. Um, in game four, he had um, two blocks. So, um, yeah, they've just done an outstanding job. And I think anyone's actually watched these games would say um, there have been times where the Rockets' offense has been completely nullified. Um, say they were double-team harder, and then at that point, it looked like they had no idea what they wanted to do. So um, the Lakers' defense, one of the best defenses in the league during the regular season, is this form has just really continued over into the playoffs. Yep, yep. And um, so do you see it being finished in five? Do you see yeah. the Rockets having any way of... Coming back, not a chance. Is there, is there, is there anything? Is there anything they can do? Uh, Harden goes off for sixty, but he can't because the Lakers yeah, have schemed it in such a way that they're limiting the off number of shots Harden's able to get off. So I don't see them winning Game Five. All right, well, fair enough. Well, uh, that's the Western. Should we should we look at the other Western matchup? The uh, Clippers against the Nuggets. Um, of course, that's looking. I, I think another- I'm a bit wary for time. Um, so yeah, I think let's just, go, very... let's just look at what happened in that Heat box series. Well, we'll do a very sort of quick uh, roundup. So the Clippers uh, Nuggets essentially is just Kawhi delivering and LA proving too strong for a Nuggets team that cannot rely on its depth. Straight onto Heat against the Bucks. I guess um, just one thing to add there: um, we're not seeing those same forty fifty point performances from Jamal Murray. And again, why is that? That yeah. Clippers defense has just been terrific. Too bad. Too bad. Um, right, so you wanted to talk about this series especially. It's a complete shock. I mean, the conference lead is being dumped out at the semi-finals level. That's not something that's seen since the Raptors got smashed by the Cavs yeah. back in 2018, <laughs> of course. Um, so not too long ago. Um, I guess we have to look forward with this one in terms of the Bucks. Do they now disintegrate or was there something there that it was just maybe coaching. It was just maybe the wrong matchups for them. But they can run this back again and have another go, really. Oh, man. <laughs> it was one of the strangest series of, I've ever witnessed. Um, is it that shocking? That was the question I'm going to ask you there. Because I know if we focus solely on, okay, what records they got during the regular season, you say, okay, um, it is a bit of a surprise, but in terms of just the strength of squad, the squad and the depth that these teams have, like if you look at both teams on paper, I'd say the Heat look like the better team. Like I know you've got world, like the one of the best players in the world, in Yanis on the Bucks team, but what has uh, Jimmy Butler shown throughout all these playoffs is that he's he definitely in that conversation of you know top ten player in the NBA. And so when you look at it from that perspective. All the supporting cast and role players, you'd honestly give the advantage to the Heat. Um, so I don't think if we just don't just focus on the regular season because we know regular season doesn't mean everything. This it's not that big of a surprise. You've had you have amazing 
three-point shooting. They're the best three-point shooting team in the league. That's an area that the box struggled uh, more so during the bubble and during these playoffs in terms of defending from the three-point line. Um, their rim defense has been uh, pretty elite all season long, but that's not where the Miami Heat's biggest strengths lie. So um, if you look at the matchup in that perspective, you also look at the Miami Heat's defense, is, I, I would argue is elite, uh, in terms, especially in terms of the personnel they have. You have Jimmy Butler, Tyler Hero has been playing some fantastic defense, Bam Adebayo. Um, of, of course, you've got Andre Iguodala coming off the bench and Jay Crowder who just wears on people with his energy and uh, intensity. Then you look at a very tough matchup for this Bucks team. And so, especially when Yanis went down as well, I'd, li- I'd like to hear your opinion on that as well, Camille. Um, I thought, wow, this team has no chance in game four. And then what happens? The Bucks then take game four. And I start thinking, has this become a series? But we then see game five happen. We see a gentleman sweep. And really, I, aside from what I've just talked about there, I... I have no idea how to really summarize what happened. Yeah, no, I mean, um, it was it was really weird. I mean, I found myself cheering for the Bucks in Game Four just because it showed a lot of grit to come back, and Chris Middleton especially, oh. sort of, um, you know, DeRozan, CJ McCollum type. He's always very second fiddle, but it was very very nice to see him stepping up. He made some very lift. difficult shots. Did he see some of those, Camille? Oh, big Unbelievably but, difficult. But then the thoughts was it's absolutely unsustainable and they're just delaying the complete inevitable because that, that heat team, especially with playoff Jimmy, really, really impressed. And I think will be a very difficult matchup for either the Celtics or the Raptors in game five because they're both very strong defensively, both on the perimeter and inside. Um, you know, no one allows easy buckets of these three teams. So I think... Eastern Conference Finals is going to be, it might be even more of a grinder than the Raptors against the Celtics. You know, I, I, I almost would be more comfortable facing the Bucks at this stage because at least they've got clear weaknesses as well as, you know, clear strengths. And yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it, actually. Um, yeah. And looking forward to that matchup, I know um, we may be being presumptive, but um, question, my question is, who would you see as the favourites uh, in both of those matchups? So whether it's the Heat versus the Celtics or the Heat versus the Raptors, maybe that's a nice way to wrap things up. Uh, yeah, sure. No, I think I think the Celtics would take it in six against the Heat just because I think they're much stronger on the perimeter defence, even though both, have, have I said, are very strong. And they've got, though, they, they, they just have a, a, a lot more scorers. The Raptors don't have enough players who can go for 20 a game, but the Celtics, you could literally trust six of them to score 20 every game uh and they especially with gordon hayward coming back as well exactly exactly hayward will be back um i think the raptors would be tighter i'd trust the heat in seven over the raptors just because Mm. i think it'll be a shock i think they shock the bucks because they managed to stop their number one player uh in those early games and you know it's just not enough having players playing second fiddle so without a superstar really i mean and you can argue the celtics do have a few superstars in their side but without that um i don't think the raptors can can take it against the heat but as you said it's a bit presumptuous and you know i'd be very happy just to see the raptors play even four more games after tonight you know yeah, uh, yeah. A bonus. anything's a bonus from here um so right i think i think we'll end it there i mean yeah. i hope this isn't the last time we're going to discuss 
the a Raptors, Raptors game. So. Well, a pre- preview a Raptors game. We hope to preview the Eastern Conference Finals. But if it is, then you've been a uh, wonderful audience. So um, thanks very much for joining us during the pandemic slash season. Uh, and Burrell, thanks very much. I, I think you're due a promotion at the end of this episode, at the end of the season. Sorry. Oh, from assistant assistant to maybe assistant. Maybe assist, maybe temporary assistant. Yeah, <laughs> chief assistant. Yeah. You're like those. I'm like a gig worker for Amazon, mate. I have absolutely zero employment rights. But anyway, um, yeah, peace out, people. All right, have a good one.